right, we are live now. So thank you everyone for coming here today to our session, The Digital Patient, uh, Healthcare's Next Frontier. Um, so, you know, what we hope to have one day is, you know, what we're terming as a digital patient, this avatar that has all of our information on it, every test, all our genetic data, all the things that we go through in terms of our medical health record that it matures w with us with time. So, you know, we're not quite there as of today. Where we're really at is if you, you all have all heard that allegory where, you know, there are these people in a cave. Allegories always start with people in a dark cave for some reason. Um, and they're blindfolded and they're feeling this animal and they're, you know, describing it and it's all, the information is all disconnected and they're trying to converge to one big picture. That's sort of where we're at right now. We have our data and our, all of our information kind of scattered to all different parts. And um, what we hope to do today is talk about how we'll eventually evolve to having this virtual model of ourselves. Um, so you can't talk about this digital patient without talking about the digital frontier that is evolving in healthcare. Um, and you know this is growing, and the pandemic really helped um, the acceleration of the digital healthcare ecosystem. And in talking about the digital healthcare ecosystem, you can't talk about involving it with AI and big data. Um, just to give you a point of reference for how much spending is occurring in AI, um, it's growing. In 2016, it was roughly around $760 million. By next year, it's estimated to be well over $10 billion. And I think it's gonna be um, a conservative estimate of spending in this area. And all the spending is going to result in some form of cost savings. Um, and hopefully it's gonna come down to us as consumers in big ways. Um, that, so it's anticipated that cost savings is gonna be anywhere between five to 10%. And to give you a feeling for what that really means in terms of dollars, that's, a, that's on order of hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and so today we're going to be exploring how the digital patient's going to evolve and um, unfortunately today, we don't have Jonathan Norris with us. You all know about the situation with Silicon Bank, um, but um, our friends are in our hearts and minds. Um, but I do have a wonderful discussion in store for you today with Casey Claiborne um, and Car Caroline Chung. And so we're gonna be touching on the digital patient with regards to um, cancer care and how we're addressing the opioid epidemic. And so we're gonna start with introductions, so I'll let you so go. All right, hi everyone, I'm Casey Claiborne. I'm the director for the Addiction Research Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. I work, um, I bridge both Dell Medical School and the School of Social Work. Um, so I do lots of work in the opioid epidemic. Um, I'm a, I have to disclose this, I'm also a consultant for some of the litigation associated with um, the health IT infrastructure and the opioid epidemic. Um, and I am currently the principal investigator for a project called Texans Connecting Overdose Prevention Efforts, which I'll be talking a lot about today as well. Um, I also need to disclose that I'm funded by the Health and Human Services Commission as well as by SAMHSA. 
I'm Caroline Chung. Good to meet you all. I'm the Vice President and Chief Data Officer at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I'm also the Director of Data Science Implementation and um, Development and Implementation of the upcoming Institute of Data Science and Oncology at MD Anderson. And I'm a practicing radiation oncologist with an imaging, computational imaging lab. So I, I definitely I'm in the world of AI. At the same time, I, I'll be sharing with you some of the experiences of some of the upstream challenges to the excitement of AI today. Yeah. Good to meet you all. So um, where I want to start is really what you all think is going to be the future of this digital patient ecosystem. And as I mentioned earlier, the AI is getting adopted widely. And um, even though it has adoption in healthcare. This has been really lagging still. Um, and, and ultimately, where it's proven ground that I believe is gonna be in healthcare, just because of the multi-dimensional aspect of what we have to balance, which is, you know, um, healthcare is an area, a, a sector that's really burdened with um, financial cutbacks in some areas, um, lots of paperwork, regulatory issues, and then at the same time you have to think about like the, the patient outcomes, the life or death situations um, that you have to, to make. Now, um, I was reading that there was a study in 2021 at the end of the year that basically said that um, they surveyed uh, CEOs in healthcare and 85% of them at the time said that they had an AI strategy. And now, um, apparently more than half of them are implementing AI technologies. And so, Caroline, um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what MD Anderson is implementing with regards to patient care um, and what the current um, uh, ecosystem looks like for a digital patient and what the future looks like um, for us. Sure, I guess I'll start with the term digital patient. I think for an institution like MD Anderson where we are a cancer center, ideally you probably should not be coming to see us unless you have that diagnosis and see by default a digital patient would be an appropriate term. I think if we're thinking true future state, wouldn't it be great to say a digital individual who does not become a patient because we can actually intervene in a preventative way. So you know, even the term digital patient really reflects on where we are in terms of what we call healthcare, which is more illness care. And we're really dealing with people who already have illnesses. So I'll just kind of take a pause there. In terms of where we are in terms of digitally connecting with our patients, we've actually, I'm sure like many institutions during the pandemic have needed to connect with people virtually. And so that virtual care connection has really been grown up in an accelerated fashion out of necessity. So that's part of the part of the piece. But as we've done that, we've also learned a lot of new um, limitations as well as challenges to actually rolling out digital solutions. One is that not everyone is digitally literate. Not everyone has access to these areas. And so how do we actually start to build in tools that are more intuitive. I think that there, if you think about where computers were at one point in time versus what you hold in your hand today, which is a mini computer, and how intuitive it is, I think that there's a long way to go in terms of what we can do to make patients um, be able to interact with that digital environment in the healthcare environment. I think some of it is the terminology that physicians use and what's being asked. 
There was just a recent article actually talking about administrative toxicity of healthcare. So every time you go in, you need to fill out a whole bunch of paperwork just to get yourself set up in the healthcare system. So how do you start to use the digital tools to actually minimize that administrative burden for people to even get access to healthcare. So I think those are some of the things that we're proactively looking at in terms of how do we engage with our community, with our patient population that ranges in age from pediatric all the way to very elderly patients who really need help to actually make that a, a, you know, access available to them. And so those are all the different pieces that we've been working on. The other piece of it is that just because we digitally connect and we interact, if the data behind what we're actually interacting with you isn't accurate, what does that digital connection really mean? And so we've really taken a step back to say, what are we actually communicating out? How confident are we in the information that we're communicating out? So taking an introspective look at how do we make our data more reliable so we have confidence in the decisions that we make, in the conversations that we have, in the communications that we relay out through that digital interface. Yeah, mm -hmm. so on, on that note um, about the confidence level of your data and you know with AI, um, training data is a big deal. And, and if you're getting data that is um, incomplete, uh, bias in some way, um, it creates a big problem and it could create harm. So how do you go through, what processes do you have to really be able to filter out and understand you know, that maybe one small data point is really an outlier and that could you know, take the care direction in a, in a different way? Yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, um, I just published in December 2021, there was a paper that I published in Cancer Research that talks about the metadata supply chain and so the metadata are all the descriptors around the data. I'm sure many of you are nodding in the audience and you're very familiar. But I think that if you take data out of context and you start lumping a bunch of patients that kind of look the same, and when you have completely de-identified data sets with limited data being exposed, they all look the same, but you miss the context of how that data was captured, you could literally be combining apples with oranges, not even in the fruit category, to legumes and everything else. You might be combining it with rocks, quite frankly. And so, you know, I think we started to take a dial back. Cancer is a complex disease, and each person's journey through cancer is very unique. And each of those time points at which that measurement is taken, and that context around that measurement, if that is ignored, you're gonna start combining data that may not be so meaningful. And so you can generate in that de-identified training data set something that seems to have good performance. You can take a subset of that de-identified data and say, well, I've validated my model, it works. And then you throw it into the real world and it's suddenly not working so well. And yeah. so we've started to take a step back and say, how do we capture that context? How do we capture the metadata that really describes that context so we can apply the right models to the right patients that really do fit based on what, what data has been used to actually train those yeah. models? And Casey, in your case, you don't really quite have patients that you're dealing with. Um, tell us a little bit about like, your, your, your target group. 
Yeah, so we do a lot of work with our project called TexCope, T-X-C-O-P-E. It stands for Texans Connecting Overdose Prevention Efforts. This was actually initiated by the state of Texas. The Texas Targeted Opioid Response Program came to me about three years ago um, with a highly innovative idea. They said, we need better data. We know that the data in Texas related to um, the overdose epidemic and related to the opioid epidemic is subpar. Um, nobody at a national level has been able to do this. Can you come up with a solution? And so I, I pulled together a proposal for a digital ecosystem um, that would improve our data sources. It would, it would aggregate the different data across um, the healthcare system, but also across our social services and our community, um, which I'll talk about more in a second. And they loved the idea. Um, and then they were like, well, actually, can you just build an app and just see if people will just use that and they'll enter data for us? And I was like, we can do that, but nobody will use it. And so how do we actually build something that will have a public health impact um, that merges both public safety, um, so we're working with a highly stigmatized, challenging population um, for people who have opioid use disorder, particularly in a very conservative state where um, not all of our policies um, are helpful for getting people into the healthcare system who have opioid use disorder. And so with this digital ecosystem, we knew that we had to engage um, both the community, we had to engage experts across multiple domains in the healthcare system, um, in public safety, public health, et cetera. But we also knew we needed people who use drugs at the table as well, um, telling us, you know, what, what can we build that will actually be useful for the community at large? And when we're talking about the healthcare system, when we're talking about mental health and we're talking about addiction and stigmatizing, um, or conditions that are stigmatized, I guess I should say, um, oftentimes people, our patients, don't interact with the healthcare system. They don't call EMS when they have an overdose. They don't go to the emergency department um, because they also don't want legal repercussions associated with drug use, for example. And so we have to rethink the system of healthcare. What does that mean? And how do we build these tools, these digital ecosystems that will actually incorporate the community and those who are most disenfranchised and most vulnerable? Yes. Um, so that leads me to talking about how you all are using your data. And um, you know, data stewardship is a big deal, right? Because it's a matter of like building trust with your community um, and um, with you know the insurers as well as the patients and the physicians and so on. Um, and what, what's interesting with regards to data is that I, I read a study recently, um, and it's predicted that by 2025, which is just a couple of years from now, healthcare is going to um, take up about 36% of the global data volume in the world. That's a lot. That's a lot of information out there for us to work with. Um, and so, you know, how, how are we going to actually steward this data and information and build around? Um, a data, a digital ecosystem that will provide good patient outcomes, good patient experience um, for us. And in particular, you know, when I think of the digital patient still, I think about, um, I'm gonna go a little personal, because it is about patient experience and what their families are going through. And so a few years ago, my mom, we found out that my mom had a brain tumor 
And so we started her on therapy, and then we, t we went all the way through to, to you know, putting her in hospice. And the issue is, is that um, you know, when you have a situation like that, and as a patient, as a caregiver, you go and you visit um, physicians and take treatment, and all that information is so disconnected. We talk about, okay, we can, we ha can have an app and people can sign in, but, um, but it would be wonderful to really have an experience where you're not as um, you know, deeply emotionally like, um, affected by you know, taking your people through this, this process of their health care. And so, um, you know, with this, Caroline, I, I wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, the data strategies that you have in your, your organization, and, as well as yours, Casey, in terms of, like, how do you manage these, these experience for families and, and their patients? Better. Yeah, there's a few things there that I would love to touch on. So yeah. one is, I think, going back to the whole healthcare versus illness care. Yeah. And there have been several companies that have actually, startup companies that have really started to engage in when is the best time for people to learn about their health and learn about medical care and learn about medical terminology and their processes. It's actually when you're well. And if you start to generate a practice of documenting various measures around your health when you are well, most people are willing to volunteer and be able to participate in that and engage. When you actually try to get people to engage when they're completely overwhelmed, they've just been given a life-changing diagnosis, and now you're like, now you need to click on all these other buttons to actually do, make this app work. That's probably not the right time to be giving even more information. In fact, that's when you really want to cater the information and data that is relevant to that individual patient. So I actually have a clinical trial open. It's a randomized trial where I'm a radiation oncologist, as I said, and is trying to describe radiation treatment to someone who's never heard of it before. It's a big, scary machine. Most people don't want radiation because all they think about is the Hulk or you know, the fact that <laughs> it causes cancer. Why are you giving me more radiation? I've already been diagnosed with cancer. And so trying to describe to them what that means and the potential side effects, the current practice is actually to go through. I'm sure you, if you go home and open your Tylenol bottle and you pull out the sheet of potential side effects, like there's, there's thousands of different side effects you could potentially have. Do all those side effects really apply to you? Probably not, because I'm sure you've all taken Tylenol and nothing happened and your pain got better, right? So the thing is that when patients are given a cancer diagnosis and we're walking through them through the potential side effects of chemotherapy or radiation, you give the whole list of potential side effects and the immediate thing is you start going through what if, what if scenarios of terrible things that could happen to you versus actually just introducing what is likely to happen to you, what are the serious things that you should watch out for and you need to call me if you have these symptoms because we may need to get you to the emergency room and really cater it down. And we've started to, we've, in the randomized trial, we actually introduce a personalized video based on patients with brain tumors, and this is why I bring it up, based on their scan, the location of their tumor, and where that radiation is going, we actually list out, these are the likely symptoms you probably have already been experiencing. It helps the person relate going, that is what I've experienced. 
this is likely the types of side effects you're going to experience. And this is a range of normal that is normal expected side effects that are okay, alleviates that anxiety. Yeah. And then say, here are the things you really need to watch out for because this would trigger my anxiety and say, you need to go in and get additional care. And we've actually started to do this with both the patient and the caregiver and they fill out anxiety questionnaires to see whether the personalized information versus the generic standard of care information would really help. And so that's an example of where we've really catered the data, not to say we're giving you more data, but the relevant data that matters to you in that moment when you are very vulnerable. Yeah. That's one example. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. And I'm hoping that you know there comes a day where there's more connections between like the different physicians that we're dealing with yeah. whenever we're we're in a you know a cancer treatment situation in, in this case. Um, so Casey, um, you know the Texas Tribune uh, quoted Texcope as being a crowd sources source data to um, mm -hmm. help with with uh, pinpointing where resources are needed for uh, opioid. Um, um, to address the opioid situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, in relation to like forming this network to support people, it's, you're dealing with a situation where you're, you're, you have to get buy-in mm -hmm. from the local community, regional, you know, just Austin, and then the surrounding counties, and then the state, and then you're moving your program national. Mm -hmm. How are you getting buy-in to be able to support you know, yeah. the community. You know, this is something, buy-in was something we knew at the very beginning. We have a team of psychologists. Um, I mean, the team is extraordinarily interdisciplinary, but our team of psychologists came on board early on and, and population health experts, and they said, you know, you're working with people who use drugs, you're working with unhoused populations. How, how are you going to get data entered into the system? Um, and then how, how do we actually capitalize on the healthcare data that's out there? Um, so we knew from a very early stage that we had to do what's called a co-design process and a community-engaged research process. And so we, we pulled together um, a team of people who use drugs. We had local street artists who were actually doing all of our branding and our marketing materials. You can go to txcope, texcope.org, and actually you'll see some of the, the branding that the street artists did for us and stuff. Um, and so we knew that trust was really important from the beginning. Um, we knew that as an academic institution um, and also as a government institution who was funding us, that we did not have trust in the community for a variety of reasons, particularly with the populations we were trying to serve the most. And so we actually didn't, I never represented my, myself as being from the University of Texas within our community meetings. We had um, community uh, individuals from the community who led our board meetings. And then we also made sure to pull in um, you know, people who were, who were actively using drugs, people with lived experience, um, into every decision in making this digital ecosystem. Um, and so this was truly, it was informed by the community, it was built by the community, and it's built for the community, um, which is something that really, honestly, especially in the addiction space, has not been done before. Um, one thing as it relates to data use, um, and establishing buy-in, you know, we're, we're collecting data from all these disparate data sources. So from emergency departments, from EMS, emergency management systems, fire departments, 
um, but also from our street outreach workers, our local mental health authorities, um, our harm reduction organizations, so these grassroots organizations doing community outreach to unhoused populations. Um, and you know the data ranges from Excel files to EPIC, electronic health record systems. And so being able to make sure that we um, meet the organizations where they're at um, with their level of trust and, and being able to be very transparent, data transparency has been critical. Um, we intentionally have not included law enforcement in the public safety efforts in the build out of TechScope just because we had our harm reduction organizations say, well, we're gonna pull out and we're not gonna endorse TechScope if public safety is involved and if law enforcement's involved. And so it took about two years of collecting data um, and preliminary research to be able to inform this community-driven response um, in the build-out and then also the design of the TechScope platform. Okay, I want to follow up on <laughs> why was law enforcement not included? What was the thinking behind that a little bit more? So just to clarify, I meet quarterly with the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Agency and um, a lot of law enforcement officials because we, we want to make sure we have, we want to eventually, this is our goal, um, and I'm hoping we can accomplish it this year, is to be able to bring public safety and public health together to actually have a coordinated opioid response to the epidemic. We have not seen that. If you guys are paying any attention to the opioid crisis, if you're paying any attention in Texas, it is completely segregated and siloed. And a lot of that has to do with our policies in place for the opioid response. Um, if we, here's a great example, and this is, this is where TechScope, I think, has a lot of potential for using AI to really make a, a improvements in this space. Our emergency management system data, our EMS data that we use at a national level to determine the scope of the overdose crisis and the opioid epidemic in the US, that data, it's about six months before it's actually usable when we get into the hands of public health officials. In a drug crisis, do you think six months is actually giving you enough data to be able to inform data-driven response? Absolutely not. But once we started digging into the EMS data, we found that especially in um, states that don't have what are called Good Samaritan laws that protect people from going into, if you go to the emergency department or if you call 911 and there's drug paraphernalia, you know, drug paraphernalia around, if we don't have a Good Samaritan law in place, then a lot of times there are legal repercussions just for the bystanders um, who are calling because there's, there's drug paraphernalia there. So in the EMS data, we found that a lot of people, when they call 911 for an overdose, for example, they don't say that they had an overdose. They say, well, there's an altered mental status or there's a heart respiratory failure, sorry. Um, and they do that intentionally so that the police don't get called out. Now what we found with our work is that first responders, they work in the community. They, they become acquaintances and friends with, with, these, um, with the individuals that they serve. And so the first responders code their EMS reports and they don't actually report necessarily that an overdose incident occurred. Our data nationally is severely underreported. And so this is where AI has the potential to come in. We actually just published a paper this summer where we're taking EMS data and we're using natural language processing to be able to look at the unstructured data and be able to better detect whether or not an overdose incident occurred, if it was a suicidal intent or if it was accidental. 
And so I think there are just massive gaps. You know, we haven't used any of um, good, honestly, data techniques to be able to drive our response for the overdose crisis. Yeah, I was going to just build on that is because I think the challenges in the opioid crisis and just the different teams that you're describing, I think that most people would relate to the fact that this happens and you can kind of relate where the emotional hesitancy of sharing this kind of data and even reporting certain types of data. Mm -hmm. Sadly, I would say that the, the silos and how we actually report and the amount of unstructured data that is, and the data that's captured inconsistently across yes. medical systems is true regardless. It's not only in the opioid crisis, it's very true in any sort of healthcare. And the EHR systems, as much as they do provide some structure in how the data flows, and I'm actually seeing giggles in the room now, um, they, they are actually intentionally designed with different data models because they want to protect their IP. Um, and I think that it is up to us as individuals, as patients who deserve to have this data you know, translated across to demand that interoperability. We need to be able to, and it's not just technical, it's not just that these two systems can flow. We're talking about semantic interoperability. When, when a person puts in their note that something is suspicious of or very concerning for, these are all qualifying words, and when we've actually done questionnaires to clinicians who are using these words or any clinical provider what these words actually mean, suspicious of can mean anywhere from 5% to 90% suspicion. <laughs> Concerning for can mean anywhere from 20% to 80% you know, concern for that disease. And so how do you actually pull out quantitative data from that range because mm -hmm. the error bars are enormous. And so how do we actually start to translate and really have that data flow downstream? Part of it is that the practice of medicine has been a historical practice of medicine since Hippocrates. And it's a storytelling practice. Mm -hmm. And we are now transitioning, trying to be data-driven from a storytelling practice. And so how do we start to implement tools? And I would urge any of you who are in startups trying to build out these tools, that integration and co-development yes. into the actual clinical workflow is so critical because if you go and build out an island over here and the person needs to sign on to yet another system mm -hmm. that doesn't talk to the other systems, that, that buy-in is probably not going to happen because the, the urgency of which you need to get that data into the system so you can give the proper care, the care is given, but then that documentation has not gone back to actually document the real thing that's happened in the clinic. The right decisions have happened, and if you think about what we're training our models on when we talk, think about decision support tools, you've got a conversation that's been documented in the EHR, you've got a decision coming out at the other end. What's happened in between that documentation and the decision? Probably about 20 different phone calls, other emails, just clarifying things, uh, making sure going back through other people's chart notes, and what's been documented in that chart and related to the output 
is what the AI is taking in, and it's missing the entire gap of data in between. And so how are we going to discover true algorithms that work if we're missing a good chunk of that data? And so we need to find ways where we can actually better document these processes that are in between if we're really going to try to build out true decision support tools that work alongside clinical teams. And to even complicate that, um, when we take in mental health and, and substance use and behavioral health into account, you know, many of our systems, I, I work with organizations, sorry, I keep hitting myself. Um, <laughs> I work with organizations who literally track their patient records on Excel files. Um, and that's, that's their digitized system. And then we have other organizations who, you know, they may have homegrown EHRs. So how do we, how do we actually have true interoperability mm -hmm. where we can literally track an entire patient? Because we can't just think about physical health. We have to think about the mental health and the whole person as a whole. And also what social services are they in need of and receiving as well. And so I think that's something that has huge potential impact for the future. Yeah, and with regards to interoperability, you know, there's the human person yes. involved in all of this, and then how do we like weave that into the AI that we're developing? Yes. Because then that says a lot about the quality of the data that we're dealing with mm -hmm. and outcomes. Um, and, and on that, I'm gonna ask you about health equity, right? Um, the quality of the data is dependent on the representation that that data is uh, is pro providing and how diverse it is, um, and so, you know, in both of your roles um, in exploring and, and helping out the community, like how are you making sure that you, one the data is diverse enough to provide the information that's needed, and two, how are you ensuring that as we're, you know, going into this digital age that we're not leaving people behind because with technology, it's going to really, in some cases, exacerbate that gap. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I can start. So as it relates to health equity and TechScope, you know, we, we took, um, we just published a paper called Ethical by Design and our next paper we're hoping to publish will be Equitable by Design. And the reason this is important, I'll give you a real world example that happened in Texas last year. Um, so we, the state of Texas has um, a pool of funding that funds naloxone distribution or Narcan distribution across the entire state of Texas. And it's funded each fiscal year, um, which starts in September and rolls until the end of August each year. We ran out of naloxone in January of last year for the state of Texas. We ran out of state funded naloxone. And so what ended up happening um, is we found that a lot of the naloxone had been distributed to police departments and it was stored in storage units in police departments and that we weren't able to reallocate that to the streets where people were overdosing and, and dying. Keep in mind, we're in the midst of a historical overdose epidemic. We had pre pandemic, we were averaging about 75,000 deaths. And these are people that we know who died of an overdose. Now we're up to, we will hit over 110,000 for 2022. That is atrocious. It, it's just horrific. And, you know, when we have stores in the lock zone sitting in storage units and we can't reallocate that, that's a huge problem. And so what Texcope is designed to do is it will be able to detect 
and prevent shortages like that. And if we do have shortages for naloxone, for example, then we'll be able to know and identify where it's stored and reallocate it before it expires um, and be able to make sure that our resources are distributed equitably. equitably. Early on in the project, um, during our preliminary research, that was something that came up very regularly with especially our street outreach teams and our harm reduction organizations. They would talk about how, you know, we feel like we're just throwing spaghetti against a wall and hoping we get our resources distributed to the right people. We have no data driving our response efforts. And so that's where having the data to really drive response can improve equitable distribution of resources across our communities for the public health response. Yeah, I mean, equity is a challenge. And I think that one is starting to look and making sure that you have a broad view of the populations. When it comes to cancer care, some of the things are just the frequency in which you get to your visit. So if you're in a rural part, you need to travel to your center, it becomes difficult, it's costly. Um, these things can prohibit the frequency of visits. You as, a, as your own patient and, or caregiver would choose to come less frequently. And a lot of the algorithms that are built to actually help guide care um, are generated in large academic centers with the data that is conveniently all distributed in a certain time frame so it's easy to train that model. And that's not really accounting for missing data. So if you're not coming as often, so if you, let's say you came three, three to four times a year for a visit versus twice a year, your likelihood of having your tumor progress is going to be at larger intervals of time, surely because you haven't come to get the test to confirm that your tumor has grown. Has that really, you know, what does that mean to the algorithm is that the algorithm is no longer predicting based on the data that it was originally trained on. And now you've got these big gaps in time. So that, those sorts of considerations have to be thought of when we think about the robustness of models that we're deploying mm -hmm. in terms of making, making it equitable. Yeah. The second piece is that I think the strength of digital health uh, and digital solutions are that we have been able to overcome barriers such as language barriers because there's you know, inherent translation. Mm. We've been able to overcome you know, vision and hearing impairments because and, and um, reductions in hearing and, and even, even things like um, being able to read and just we can overcome those things using different modalities through that digital interface. So I think that there's been pros and cons, but certainly challenges that we still need to overcome. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and on the health equity part, I think like costs yeah. matters a lot um, and getting, getting affordable health to our patients uh, is, is a is very important. What are you, what are you, what's your take on like what, what is in place, programs in place with the digital patient that can help with that? I mean, I think one is awareness um, and there, there are a number of different, um, especially for the therapy, for drugs, there are a number of different programs that patients can apply to to get financial support. Um, but 
you're just not, a, not aware. And so I think that if it could trigger that if you're on drug X and we have some sort of program, can we allow proactively let them know and have a flag yeah. so that they are able to do that? Um, at MD Anderson, we have patient navigators that often assist and flag with human touch and all of that. But I think that you know, in terms of broader reach, th these are the types of supports mm -hmm. that we could definitely implement. Yeah, to help yeah. and there, there are a ton of mm -hmm. um, prescription help programs out there that people are not Just aware not of. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and we had utilized a lot of those too. Um, so we talked about data stewardship and data use, and I think um, you know we're going to touch on data privacy issues now because there is that vast amount of data that we're accumulating, and we don't know who owns it. And um, it, it's sometimes clear, but not clear, what, what you get to take with you and share. Um, and cybersecurity risks is a big deal. Um, between 2016 and 2021, over that period of five years, there was well over 42 million incidents of um, data breaches in patient records. Um, so for your situation, Casey, like how are you, you know, protecting the anonymous surveillance data um, and, and ensuring that it's not gonna get into, you know, bad hands and being used maliciously in some ways? Yeah, you know, we have a lot of data governance and policies associated with who can access our data, um, how our data is regulated. And so far, you know, that's all we've needed. But we're now entering phase two. So phase one was just anonymous de-identified data going into the system. It was pretty low risk data, um, but it helps us to identify overdose hotspots and informed um, community response efforts. Now that we're pulling in electronic health record data, EMS data, we have all these data sources that have identifiable data. And that's, that's literally what we're talking about at the table is, you know, what are the ethics behind this? Because we, if we do have data breaches, um, that could mean that one of our, our, we have people in our group who will end up going to jail. Um, so the population that we're trying to serve, you know, it, it could have very detrimental outcomes for them. And so we have an entire team at UT. Um, we have the entire legal team at UT on this project, um, as well as an uh, information security group who um, does all of our, they consult with us, um, and they do all of our um, penetration testing, um, data security testing. So it's a very rigorous response effort. Um, but we, we don't get to make that decision fully. Um, you know, this is a community-based project. And so the community that we work with, they, they inform the decision-making, but also the state of Texas informs the decision-making. And so, you know, there's, there's a level of um, bureaucracy and regulatory um, considerations that we have to go, to go through, and we're in the process. So we haven't, we haven't finished that process okay. yet. But is there any way that the data that you have can get tied back to someone like me and that follows me around, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, as of right now, we, we use a tokenization process. Okay. And so, no, the data can't be linked back to a particular yeah. person. So. All right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the stewardship piece is a big one. And I think the stewardship piece does tie back to the ownership piece as well. And so we can, we actually changed, we actually introduced a new core value at MD Anderson 
stewardship. And I, as CDO, embrace data stewardship as one of the key active pieces of stewardship that you would need to. It's, it's something that's valuable to all of our patients and us as an institution, and we are stewards of that data. Um, stewardship, I think, means multiple things. If you were, and the analogy that I've used is that when you go to your, you know, your bank, you expect the bank to protect your money, but also if you happen to invest your money, you would hope that your bank would give you guidance to actually grow that money. I would think that most of us would want that. Um, and so I think that when we think about data, we want to make sure that first and foremost, we protect that data from any ill intent and cybersecurity risks. But the second piece is that many of our patients actually want us to use that data to help them make better decisions. Many of our patients are also very open to allowing their data to be used to help that next patient. And so how do we have that open conversation? And this, this is why I say it's tied to the ownership pieces that it is unclear who owns that data mm -hmm. um, in many respects because the regulations continue to evolve. But I don't think it's, there's no lack of clarity that we are stewards of that data mm -hmm. as a healthcare organization. And so we need to serve as the best stewards possible. And that's why it's become a core value mm -hmm. for us. Yeah. So now I'm going to come back to the, the digital technology aspect of the digital patient. And ChatGPT is <laughs> you know, very popular right now. And, um, and what you know, my concern with it is that people are going to it and asking questions about how they should uh, care for themselves, what kind of treatments they're taking on. What, what are you encountering any of the misinformation that, that ChatGPT might be providing? And I actually, you know, for, for this panel, I um, asked it, you know, what are some of the programs that MD Anderson has? It gave me five different programs, and four of them were completely wrong. They were linked to like 404 pages. Um, they did not have proper citations. And so if you're not like consciously following references, like your whole digital healthcare pathway could be devastating. And so I'm sure you're encountering some, some of that and in your. <laughs> on the topic of references, so you yeah. can push ChatGPT to ask you for a reference, and it will make up a reference. It'll make up journals that do not exist. It'll even give you a DOI, a, a unique identifier that's completely made up. And if you put in that number, you won't find the paper. It doesn't exist. And so I think that's how far it's getting. Um, I was comparing ChatGPT to Google Home. So you ask Google Home a question. The one thing Google Home, it, it, no, it admits A, it'll always, it'll give you an answer that it doesn't know something. It doesn't know a lot of things, right? So it'll say, I do not know the answer. I'm still learning. But one of the things it will do is it'll start with the reference. It'll say, according to Wikipedia, and it'll tell you where it's gotten that information. And you can actually go to Wikipedia, and it's literally quoted what, what it's saying. What ChatGPT does is that it creates these answers, to your point, that look very believable, are written beautifully and succinctly, yeah. but it doesn't give you any references. And if you push it to give references, it makes them up. So I mean, that, that's actually very concerning. I mean, I haven't experienced one-on-one on, one on one with a patient who's gone to ChatGPT, but I, I've had many patients come from the internet of search of things, um, including stacks of 
papers that I was supposed to read, um, and some some that are from reputable journals that are you know reliable, and others that are literally from blog pages of people who have tried all sorts of things. And so you need to kind of, but in that situation, you can still flip through it and separate wheat from chaff and say, well, these are things you can re reliably read and learn about, and here are other things that I would probably say that you, I wouldn't put any faith in these things. And the challenge with ChatGPT is that it's really unclear where that information is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a interesting times. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Any, any encounters with... Um, we anybody? haven't directly in our work yet. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's coming. But, you know, I think we, we deal, especially with the overdose crisis, we deal a lot with misinformation. Um, and so this is definitely a concern is that it will prolific, proliferate um, the misinformation out there and more of the myths associated with the epidemic. But no, directly we haven't encountered that. Wonderful. No, that's good. <laughs> um, so our final question before we open it up to questions from the audience is, um, you know, on this digital frontier for, for us personally, um, what do you think success will look like for a digital patient? And what, how would one define that success? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I think that this is, I would go back to the co-creation co mm -hmm. um, paradigms that, you know, success should be defined by what all of us ideally would like. And I think many of us, if we all got into a, if we all left this room and went to a whiteboard and said, write everything that you think you would like it to do, I think most of us would like this digital tool to give us information about what we should be doing to stay healthy, um, or perhaps giving us warnings of things that you know, should, we shouldn't be doing. Can it help motivate and remind us to do certain things? And I think many of us actually do have some of these tools already on our cell phones, you know, tracking how many minutes you may have meditated or slept or <laughs> calories you've taken in. And I think these are all pieces. But I think the other piece around this is that we're really in this information age, it's really exciting, but it's incredibly overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so how, one of the things that we've been focusing on is really working with patients and caregivers and how we actually convey that information. How do we prioritize which information is given, especially at the times of the greatest vulnerability? Mm -hmm. And how do we bring in concepts like risk and uncertainty and things, statistical concepts that are very difficult to grasp and presented in a visual or interactive way that we can actually, it'll actually help with their decision making. Because if you just gave someone a bunch of statistics, I mean, the pandemic was a great example of giving, throwing out a bunch of statistics and numbers and not knowing what to do. So how do you convey those concepts in a way that we can actually feel that we're making informed decisions better. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I, I'll talk about it within the context of TechScope. I think you know, de success defined for TechScope will be when we can actually see a community using TechScope widely, and that data is driving public health response within that community. And so you know, I think we've been talking about the digital patient, you know, how we define the patient. It can also be at the community level um, and, and defining some of our public health responses as well. And so being able to um, you know, pinpoint resource allocation needs and, and making that distribution more equitable uh, and then timely, I think, is, is critical, especially when we're in the midst of an overdose crisis. Yes. And 
And um, you know, I'm hoping for eventually something on my iPhone or my <laughs> iPad that has a picture of me down to my cells to figure out you know, if I need heart surgery. There could be like a simulation that can figure out if I really should have heart surgery or not. <laughs> not that I need one right now, but you know, that's, that's my aspiration for where we would be eventually through our life from birth till tell you know, the, the next world. Um, so with that, I'm going to open up to questions. Please come up to the mic if you have any questions for, for us. Yeah, thank you all for the presentation. You know, we talk about the digital patient and where things need to be, and we all have this magic view that, that it's just going to be there. And we've got privacy concerns. EMR, you know, I started with an EMR in 2005. It was going to be fixed two years later. <laughs> you know, I've been in practice for 25 years. Our institution just installed an EMR, and it's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. $26 million to be tortured. <laughs> you know, we laugh, and I appreciate the laughter. Thank you, because I'm an amateur comedian. But, <laughs> but you know, this is, this is really serious, because right. what we have is we have a system that is designed to keep us away from the innovation that we desire. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. of this. And I just most specifically, Dr. Chung, I'd like to know a little bit more about your AI. I may have missed it in the introduction. But are you at MD Anderson, are you, are you looking at different uh, AI vendors? Are you doing this in your own system? Uh, I may be making an assumption you all work on Epic. Uh, I don't know if Epic is doing anything. But, you know, could you talk about that, just the, the technology of AI that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, there's a ton of AI vendors that approach us all the time. In general, the, the, the step that we've taken is we've partnered with AI vendors that are willing to co-develop with us and work with us because, again, that contextual piece is often missing when we actually dig deeper into what they're presenting, and it looks great, but as you apply it to your own data, it doesn't work, and so we want to partner with people who are willing to work with us. And in addition to having models that are being developed in-house, and some of the things that we've been really investing in is actually the data ecosystem that allows us to more efficiently evaluate whether models are working or not working, as well as starting to dig deeper with that metadata of why did it not work? So where is the problem? Is it, that, is it the data sets we've selected? Or is it truly that the model of performance is not working? And comparing models to models, if we actually look at all the you know, any pre-processing assumptions that have been made, if we actually have that all tracked, we can actually really compare true performance. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This has been a really great discussion so far. And I, for context, I am more on the tech side that's moving into healthcare rather than really focused in on healthcare. So I know we talked about what, orga what organizations are doing to push a lot of this forward, but what as an individual can I do um, to really contribute to some of the data that's being collected, um, as well as what are like the wearables and the technology that we have at home contributing to some of the work here for the digital patient? So within the cancer space, we're actually exploring multiple wearables. We have um, clinical trials that are ongoing with smartwatches, um, we have trials that are ongoing with continuous glucose monitoring. We have trials, so there, and then, and then things that are just being collected on in terms of step counters, et cetera. And so I think that there are multiple wearables that could be very informative moving forward. 
Um, again, when it gets to that granular data, the privacy piece starts to come in. And so I think this becomes a conscious decision of whether you're going to contribute. Um, they're going back to the privacy piece, that, that digital patient that you're describing, you know, some would argue that every digital patient that's formed is actually a privacy risk in itself because that's true. you digitally Absolutely. in yeah. that world. So uh, it becomes complicated very quickly because of the because of the rights versus you know where does where's the security and do we have the security measures in place to even create this in a yeah, safe environment? Yeah. And then with regards to like the creator of the digital mm -hmm. app or framework like and you have to like sign over your privacy rights, but you right. want to retain it. Yeah, no, it's it's a catch-22. Yeah. yeah. Next question. Hello, thank you all for being here today. This has been a great panel. You've touched on ownership and stewardship of the data. Uh, I know there's a, not a lot of clarity around ownership right now, but there is a movement for patients to own their data. So I'm really interested in your perspective as care providers as to the pros and cons of it actually sitting with the patient instead of the system that's providing the care. <laughs> yeah, I'll start with um, my perspective from the addiction space and the mental health space. So, you know, data ownership from a patient perspective and at the patient level is, is very important, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. We've talked about privacy, we've talked about legal considerations um, and, the, and the potential negative impact on the patient without having that ownership. At the same time, you know, when we're talking about public health emergencies and public health response, um, you know, having, having ownership at more of an organization level, it can help to inform more of a robust response um, and, and inform our public health using data to drive our public health efforts, for example. You know, this is a conversation that we definitely won't figure, finish in three minutes. Um, so, <laughs> Dr. Chung, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you because um, it gets pretty controversial fast. I think it depends on what you're talking about as data. And so measurements taken out of your blood test and those are your values, perhaps, you know, do you, do you have rights to have access to that data? And I think this is where, you know, ownership is such a tricky word because I think that what most of us are wanting is access to that data. Okay. Sure. I mean, I think that it really depends on the type, again, going back to the type of data. So I think when you actually generate derivatives from the raw measurements, I think those derivatives, if they've been taken from multiple measurements and some, in, some institution has invested to actually generate some sort of product out of that, mm -hmm. that, that probably does belong to the institution. The raw data itself, that's where I think the ownership question really comes into play. I know that there are companies that are actually approaching patients to actually get access to devices, get access to tests in exchange for their data, and that really is a patient data ownership exchange at that point. I think that there are ethical questions around just even that that we wouldn't tackle in the next few minutes. But I, I think that, you know, I think that the world is moving in that direction. And I think that's where healthcare organizations um, are probably wise not to kind of step on and talk about ownership outright because the the, the ecosystem is changing so quickly. Yeah. Great presentation. 
you mentioned the challenges of interoperability between systems, and in specifics, the lovely term of semantic interoperability. So 10 years ago, HL7 came up with a series of data models to address this problem. They called it FHIR. And five years ago, everybody was talking about FHIR. Yes. And now the fire is out, right? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what happened? Do you have insights about that? Um, some of the semantic interoperability that I'm referring to is upstream of fire. So, and this is where we've tried to take a first mile strategy. We've invested in having see, you know, multiple ontologists come on board because it's, it's even upstream of the data that's already been generated. It's at the point of generation how we're actually using our words. And I think people love to be, it's human nature to be creative. And I think that that creativity is great, except for when you're trying to collect consistent data. And it becomes really, really difficult to actually capture it into systems that are going to be read ultimately, we think, by machines to help process some of these things. And so it's fine when you're reading a novel to have creative language, but if you're actually trying to have it go in from multiple sources and actually make, have sense making, it becomes really difficult. And that, that really sits upstream of fire. There, there are still, there's still talk of HL7. So I, I'll say the fire is not out. It's yeah. still, it, it's kind of dwindled down, but I think it's, re, people are trying to rekindle. Fire is not out. It's still definitely a co topic of conversation, but I think part of it is that we've realized, especially when we think about unstructured data in the clinical notes, we're talking about NLP. It, it's well upstream of any sort of fire interoperability challenges. Hello, I'm a breast cancer surgeon at MD Anderson, and I had a different question, except the question about EHR sure did strike a sore nerve. Um, uh, you know, listening to these two disparate panelists, um, you know, the work is so challenging, and I'm just... Uh, so intrigued by Dr. Claiborne's work, Texas is a microcosm, right, of the U.S. Mm -hmm. We're such a populous state. We have rural areas that are very rural, very re removed from a lot of access. And then we have urban areas, in fact, many major urban centers. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Chung, in our, at our institution, we see patients that come from all over the world within the 49 states apart from Texas, within Texas, and then, of course, our, our local Houstonians. Um, and the, the question about EHR strikes a sore nerve because, um, you know, some of us on March 6, 2016, when, when we switched over <laughs> to EHR, at, 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 oh, sorry, did that stick in someone's mind? Um, you know, we, 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 we jokingly talked about how it's actually the world's largest billing app. But there's truth to that in terms of looking from a biodesign perspective. Our EHR isn't to solve our clinical no, it needs. Isn't. It is Correct. for the institution Absolutely. level. Yes. And as I think of the challenges that you face in addiction medicine and gathering big data across community cities in the state is that you have such variable um, and also inaccessible data capture. Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, if I had to sit here and think about all the ways I would innovate around our EHR, I would love for there to be curated, sensitive, culturally sensitive material. Mm -hmm. Van, as you discussed in the opening with the, the stressors and the emotional challenge that come with being a caregiver to a family member or to being the patient yourself. Mm -hmm. But also, for instance, at our institution that 
uh, we connect the right patient with the right clinical trial at the right time. Yes. Um, but also that what I do in the clinic as a, as a practitioner, that my charting could also support somebody's research by data capture. So we really ask a lot of EHR. And the truth is that it wasn't built for those things. And then the, the hope is to incorporate these modules that you layer upon this. And I think it's just very challenging. I commend you both. Thank you so much for a lovely panel. Well, thank you so much for being with here, being with me here today, Casey and Caroline. Thank you. Thank yes. you. It was a pleasure. So, th thank you for you all for being here.